fantastic. Welcome everybody to this evening's article review webinar. On the panel this evening, we have Carl Horton, who has an MSc in both implantology and perio, is an implant co-director, course leader and mentor for VSS, and is an honorary lecturer for UCLan. We had Fadi Barak, who is an academic lead with a master's in dental implantology with UCLan. He is duly qualified in medicine dentistry and has vast experience in oral and maxillofacial surgery in hospital and primary care. He also heads up the VSS Academy. We have Manoj Bhattiri. Manoj holds an MSc in implant dentistry, is a senior clinical teacher in implantology and a clinical supervisor and examiner at the University of Central Lancaster. We have Professor Sinjan Cream. He is the current Dean of the School of Medicine and Dentistry. He is also a consultant oral and maxillofacial surgeon at Blackpool Victoria Hospitals Trust and holds an honorably consultant post at Lancaster and Morecambe Bay University Hospitals Trust. I will now pass you over to the capable hands of Fadi Barak. Thank you, Kate. Welcome, everybody. This is our first Dental Bites meeting where we're going to be looking at some review articles. Just a very, very brief word on what this is about. So the idea is to make um, reading articles and keeping up with the research um, fun, um, as fun as we can make it. And uh, in essence, we're going to be looking at a certain number of articles from uh, some well-known journals and uh, just picking up interesting bits from them. This is by no means an ex kind of a, um, exclusive search of the journals. It's just the um, four or five top journals that we, have, we've, we usually look at and picking up specific papers of interest that have uh, impact on what we do clinically. So, um, the other thing is it's not going to be kind of a complete deep critical analysis of the article. That's not the aim. The aim is just to make you aware what papers are out there. Um, and hopefully you'll be able to go out and read them in more detail yourself if it's your fancy. So here we go. I'm going to start with a subject of um, socket shielding. And the reason is because lots of colleagues have been um, talking about socket shielding, asking me about socket, socket shielding um with with regards to implantology and how successful and so on um can i just say there's lots of background noise is it possible if maybe we can put some microphones on mute to see i don't know if it's just me but i can hear some okay that's better great um so with the socket shielding there was a article i will try and share my screen um, i'm sharing my screen with a uh, journal that's, um, let's have a look. It's open access anyway. So anybody has got access to this, International Journal of Implant Dentistry. So socket shielding technique is a critical literature review. Um, this literature review looked at 25 articles, uh, 20 of which were, which were actually case reports, just case reports. There were three retrospective um, studies, one randomized control trial and one control trial. Now, this in itself reflects the level of the articles that there are there in, in terms of um, 
the level of evidence for socket shielding. So this was from 2020. Um, the case reports, the, the 20 that uh, were look at, look at the case reports had very different um, kind of outcome measures. So what I mean by that is some of them looked at um, the pink aesthetic score. Some of them looked at um, positive results. So very general kind of um, information. So the result was good. It had good results. And there was no specific quantitative measure of um, why was the result good. And some looked at volumetric uh, dimensions, either two-dimensional or three-dimensional uh, volume uh, maintenance. Of the um, better, the basic, the one RCT, which would normally be a better evidence, um, there were 20 uh, papers that looked, uh, sorry, there were 20, they looked at 40 implants, 20 were test groups and 20 were control groups, and they reviewed them over a three-year period. So the numbers were, uh, were, were low, and the retrospective studies um, had very, very inconsistent, inconsistent designs. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's the review, you know, has tried the best in terms of the evidence that's present for this particular uh, type of surgery. Now, the outcome measures were inconsistent, but um, one of the interesting things was they looked at um, complications. The complications they reported were um, included things like exposure of the shield, of the bit of dentine that's left in the socket. And that was the highest rate of complication, was those bits of um, dentine becoming exposed. So 17 were exposed and two got infected. Then there was uh, the next level, next complication was actually resorption of these bits of dentine. Another um, couple of complications were peri-implantitis, and there were actually seven implant failures as well. So there were quite a few complications. There were different techniques used. And uh, the conclusion from this paper really was basically that there isn't enough evidence at this stage to use this technique as a day-to-day um, uh, -day, on a day-to-day -day basis for um, implant work. Interestingly enough, Another paper, which was uh, also recent from the International Journal of Periodontics and Restorative Dentistry, and this was done by Otto Zur and Philip Steyler and Marcus Hersler. Marcus Hersler, as you may well know, was the person who came up with this uh, very clever technique of socket shielding. And the idea behind the socket shielding, the way he came up with it, was that by keeping a bit of the dentine from the root in the socket, uh, the buccal aspect, you will preserve the ligament attachment to the buccal plate, and hence you will preserve uh, the bundle bone. Uh, that was when we realized that if you take all the tooth out, the bundle bone will, will resorb anyway. So Herzler has done various studies on this, and uh, this recent paper was looking at complication management of a, of a, of a case six years in function, and this was very interesting because they looked at um, this particular case where the dentine became exposed, but they noticed that the um, adjacent tooth had over erupted as well, had uh, um, had come down further uh, in the apical coronal dimension. And uh, 
the theory is that um, what's happened with, with vertical dimension growth, which can happen beyond uh, 20s, uh, and actually there are studies to show that it carries on throughout life in some, some cases. Because there's this increase in vertical dimension, the bit of dentine that they've left in the socket can actually also grow vertically, whereas the implant stays, stays behind. So what they believed happened in this particular case is that the bit of dentine moved down vertically with the rest of the um, alveolar bone and teeth, and that bit of dentine started hitting the restorative component, the crown of the tooth, and started causing problems, and it became mobile. Uh, that was quite interesting one to show that that's a possibility. And the way around that was to make sure that actually the bit of dentine needs to ankylose. It needs to be in contact with the implants or be long enough uh, for it to ankylose with the implant so it doesn't move in case of vertical dimension growth. I think the importance of this for us is even in Herzler's paper, um, Otto and Herzler, they say that um, really more research is needed. Okay, I think for me that was the interesting thing with these two papers on socket shielding, that it's a clever idea, uh, biologically fantastic, and this is what makes surgery in interesting and exciting, but this is not for mainstream use yet. And even in their own paper they say that. They say that it should not necessarily be used on uh, routine implant dentistry yet. More research is needed. Um, and also to consider that when things do go wrong, i.e. Uh, you get an exposure or loosening or infection of that bit of dentine, it needs to be removed. It may not affect implant survival, but it may well affect aesthetics, which is the whole point of doing that procedure anyway. So uh, the implant survival with all the complications was not really affected, but the actual aesthetics um, was in certain cases. <coughs> so that's socket shielding. I'm going to move on to another paper, <clears throat> which was um, to do with the use of um, low-dose aspirin on, um, uh, let me show you the paper again. We will be sending you a list of these papers, so you don't have to memorize it. So effects of low-dose aspirin on the osseointegration process in rats. Now, this was uh, an animal study, fair enough, but the idea behind this study was that Look, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories have been um, discussed in terms of their relationship with bone metabolism. Can they, some people say that they, they can affect bone metabolism negatively, others say otherwise. Um, so there is a bit of controversial data on this. This particular study looked at 32 rats and they divided these rats in, in four groups randomly. There was a control group and a test group in the control group that had um, a, a group of rats that were given saline for just seven days, so short term, and another group of saline that were given saline for 28 days, so that's the long term use. The test group had aspirin low dose, so the low dose was equivalent uh, to the human 70 to 80 um, milligrams that, that we do um, in the humans, the equivalent dose in rats um, was given. So they used that for seven days short-term aspirin use and 28 days long-term. What they found was that um, between, obviously in the control group, seven days and 28 days, there was no difference, which is what you would expect. 
I'll show you the chart briefly. So here's the use of um, um, aspirin. So this is seven days, it's 28 days. And what they looked at histologically, they looked at the bone implant contact, percentage of bone implant contact. The white bar is the control. So seven days, 28 days, no difference. What they found at seven days, there was a, a significant reduction in bone to implant contact, which recovered at 28 days. Okay, so um, early bone to implant contact was reduced at seven days. The other thing they looked at histologically was the bone area between threads, which showed the same thing. So in essence, what this paper showed was that um, the um, low-dose aspirin can affect early bone deposition around the implant, but that can recover. So what's the significance of that for us? I guess we need to consider early loading or immediate loading. In patients who are on low-dose aspirin, chronic low-dose aspirin, then, um, you know, could that be an issue when we're doing immediate loading if, if there is an early reduction in, in bone deposition? Five minutes, ah, Okay, thank you. So the, the, very briefly, the limits of the study, as, as the authors themselves said, that, look, they looked at only implants with machine surface, and they, look, they didn't look, uh, look at um, the roughened ones. Um, the other thing we could consider is high-dose higher dose non-steroidals over long term. Some people are on those. Uh, last paper I'll go through, which is um, interesting also, it's with uh, risk markers for cardiovascular disease. <coughs> this one compared um, the um, effects of cardiovascular disease markers with that of um, peri-implant disease. What they looked at, so <clears throat> they had a series of patients um, with periimplantitis. So 58 patients had periimplantitis, 49 with periimplant mucositis, and another 49 were healthy, healthy implants. They did blood tests on all of them, and they uh, basically, having looked at all the variables, the main factors that they found to be significant were that um, the vitamin D levels were lowest in the patients with periimplantitis. The next low, lowest level of vitamin D was patients with periimplant mucositis. And as, it, as you would expect, the next um, level was the healthy patient. So they had the best vitamin D levels. The other interesting thing was levels of uh, uric acid and triglycerides. They found there was a positive correlation between um, high uric acid and triglycerides and peri-implant disease. Uh, the, the, outcome measures were like bleeding on probing, pocket depths, and so on. So that kind of brings in the question of why that is. Uric acid may have uh, a relationship with increasing inflammation, increasing the inflammatory factors, um, and so on. And there is a correlation between cardiovascular disease and high uric acid. Uh, we know there is a relationship between cardiovascular disease and peri-implant, uh, sorry, periodontitis. Is there, uh, the question is, a relationship between periimplantitis and cardiovascular disease? So that's quite interesting, I thought, and um, th there are more studies needed. Uh, it's a difficult one to do. Um, this particular study, for instance, they didn't look at um, x-rays. 
um, they had low numbers, um, as they said themselves. And what the other thing they could have done to look at inflammatory factors in the circular fluid. So more experiments needed, but it makes us think, you know, low aspirin patients, cardiovascular disease relation, and should they be doing blood tests for uric acid levels with patients with known history of cardiovascular disease? I think I shall leave it at that, and I will be sending the list of papers. That's smashing. Thank you very much, Fadi. Um, over to you, Carl. Hey, fantastic. You missed out Sinjin's being a part-time comedian as um, one of his other roles. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to go off mic and heckle me now. I said, so I've got uh, quite a few papers that uh, we're going to go through. Um, I'm looking at the uh, International Journal of Oromaxillofacial Implants and I think volume five, I think, possibly six. I'll have to check on that. Um, and I've selected sort of four papers that are of interest. I found quite a few articles that are quite interesting, but we've got limited time. So uh, I've got to keep things down to a minimum. So the first paper that I'm going to be um, chatting about is titled The Survival Rates of 8mm or Shorter Tissue Level Implants in function for up to 228 months. So this was, uh, it's a study by uh, Paul Vagatsoto, uh, who's an American, and he's done a retrospective study examining the success rates of uh, shorter tissue level implants, so specifically tissue level implants, um, which is uh, of interest really. And, and the reason that we're kind of interested in whether or not shorter implants work are or comparatively successful to their longer alternatives are really so that we can have a look at areas that patients um, may be able to have an implant placed where originally we might have either avoided it or augmented it or sinus lifts so increasing the morbidity so that's the reason that we're kind of interested in looking at short implants Obviously, over time, the definition has changed, uh, and we've talked about this uh, previously, where definition of a short implant was 10 millimeters, then 8 millimeters, and 6 millimeters. But in, for this particular study, um, he's looked at mainly um, 8 millimeter implants, but he's also included um, different implants, um, 6 millimeter and some 7 millimeter implants. And what he's done is he's sort of had a look at the the different tissue level systems. So he's had a look at the regular neck and the wide neck. So these are specifically based on um, Strayman implants. Uh, he's included 4,251 implants um, that he's had a look at on single unit cranes. So it's very, very specific in the, the area that uh, they're looking at. So there's no splinted uh, restorations there. Uh, at all, so specifically um, single unit cranes, um, and sort of focused really on having a look at those. The methods were to, uh, which were, were quite laid out, quite interesting, where they've deselected certain uh, papers. Uh, they've included the study from 1998 to 2012, um, and then the results that uh, came back were looking at the success rates. Uh, and the community, commu I can't even say the word, but success rates over time. Um, and when they looked at, or when he looked at these, um, they were getting uh, very good values, uh, which, you know, we probably feel is looking at about 99% uh, plus. So these are comparative with the, the longer implants. Uh, 
the one thing that I wasn't able to pull out of the data, uh, which I would have been interested in, uh, and it may be that I'll, I'm, I've scanned things a little bit too briefly, so it might be worth looking at in a bit more detail, are the comparisons between the, the six and the seven millimeter implants in, in their success rates. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't pull that out from the paper, um, from the tables that I was looking at. And it may be that that, that just wasn't included. Um, I would imagine that it's going to be slightly less. Um, what the paper then does go on to is it goes on to discussions of other papers. So there are lots of papers out there that do talk about sort of eight millimeter implants um, and lots of research. There's some good systematic reviews, um, Nissan being quite a good paper to have a little look at if you're interested in this. Um, the, in, the data on the, the shorter implants, uh, Esposito and his group um, have had a good look at that. So when it comes to the six millimeters and below, but I thought it was a nice paper that kind of sort of supported um, some of the evidence without there. And the conclusions that, that came from this, that, that the regular neck and the wide neck implants from six to eight millimeters long uh, demonstrated a high level of success, which I think is, is supported by the literature. Um, so I thought it was it was quite a nice little paper to to have a little look at and have a little read and uh, makes you feel good. The next paper that I had a look at is a question that uh, was raised um, by a few of the students that we were lecturing and one that I get asked about, uh, and that's the difference between fully guided uh, versus what they've termed as half guided and freehand implant placement. And this was a, a systematic review and a meta-analysis and I'll, I'll try and share my screen so you can see the paper just bear with me a little bit so this was quite a quite a, a detailed study uh, in terms of uh, how they they went about this one so let's have a little look and see if i can select that for you if not you'll just have to no i can't i'm afraid so you just have to have a, a little look at the study um but this was quite interesting and I think this is interesting because some of the questions we we get asked with some of the students that are coming in and by my colleagues who are a bit more experienced are whether they should go fully guided or whether they should just go with what we term an open stent or what they term in this in this study as sort of half guided and what they did in this study is they decided that um, fully guided was pretty much everything from the fact that it's planned on the computer all the way up to the the whole of the implant is placed with the guide and then if somebody chose to place the implant without the guide then that was classed as half guided or if they used an open stent that was also classed as half guided so they they lumped anything with a stent or anything where somebody's done something slightly off guided but has a guided approach in there as half guided and then, and then freehand. Um, they do mention about the uh, dynamic navigation of the 3D software, which is uh, something we should probably talk about at some other point. It might be nice to see some research on that. But that's where what happens there is as you're placing the implant, there is actually another screen that looks at the CBCT screen and tells you where you are within bone. So that's the dynamic navigation. And they're, they're not talking about that in this. They're talking about having a stent uh, and fully guiding the implant all the way through. And the reasons that they're looking for this is that they're looking to, to get the implant in the ideal position to avoid any issues. Um, they do go into to quite a lot of detail in what they could have looked at 
Um, so it's very detailed. They, they talk about flatless. They talk about timings. They talk about whether or not they could have measured any drugs that were involved. Um, they do look at some secondary objectives. So it is very, very detailed in that. The eligibility was um, is randomized controlled trials, so they, they've had a look at those. So it's it's all on all on humans, um, and they looked at papers where there were comparative approaches. So they wanted to see two approaches, one against another, within the same paper. So they didn't just select papers where one modality has been performed, but they actually look at the comparisons between the two, which I which I thought was quite good. Um, so they they did outline that really well. Their their study selection as I mentioned, came down to uh, 10 um, randomized control trials. So they, they didn't have sort of a huge amount to, to work from, a huge amount of papers, and they, they recognized that. Um, but within those papers, they do manage to look at a total of uh, 1,200 implants or above that. So they do manage to have a, a good look at a lot of implants. Um, they outline it really well. They have a look at the deviations uh, coronally. So they, they look at that aspect as, aspect of it. They look at the uh, deviations apically, uh, and they look at the vertical deviations as well ac across the studies, uh, and they contrast and compare those. Um, I know I should say obviously, but I, I shouldn't use the word obviously. Um, but when they compare the, the freehand approach with the, the half-guided technique, uh, they found that with the half-guided technique, there was there was a lot more accuracy, certainly when it came to um, vertical placement, um, which they found, oddly enough, was was still there when you went for the fully guided approach. But sometimes there were some issues with the vertical placement on the fully guided approach. And what they thought this might be due to is the uh, positioning of reliability on where the guide sits uh, as it's being designed. Um, so that was quite an interesting thing that came out of it. But their, their conclusions really found that the, the, the fully guided and the half guided approach were far superior to, to freehand, which again, I think um, as the first paper kind of backs up what our, what our thoughts are and what the evidence is really showing us. And then I'll move on to another paper. Now, Fadi, are you, are you holding tight? Because this one is on implant surface. So I don't want you to get too excited about this, though. So this, the title of this one is The Influence of Implant Surface on Maintenance and Marginal Bone Levels for the Three Premium Implant Brands. And it's a, a systematic review and a meta-analysis. And this was uh, by Michael Norton and uh, Mikhail Astrom. And they, they sort of chose um, three brands that they felt as, as premium. And they wanted to have a look at the premium brands um, because in, in their opinion, as they state in the paper, that some of the the less premium brands can have problems with what's on the surface already. So they, they wanted um, what they call a clean implant surface, I suppose. They didn't call it that, but that's what they're looking for in the literature. So they want a, an implant surface that has no contaminants on it or as little contaminants as possible. So they felt that they wanted to choose these three to have a look at. Um, there were when they when they talked about it, they said they could find very little evidence uh, previously about the modifications on implants and, and marginal bone maintenance, uh, except one paper that they found. Um, they they looked at, sort of they talked a little bit about platform switching has been measured and the submerged and transmucosal approach has been measured and the implant abutment connection has been measured, but not this this aspect of the um, implant surface. 
and the maintenance of the soft tissue, which we're now really interested in when it, when it comes to implants. We're looking at how these sort of soft tissues respond. So that's why they wanted to have a look at these, these marginal bone levels. So the, the three implant systems they looked at were the Osseo Speed, which is the Astra, the SLA and the SLA Active, which is Strayman, and the TIE Unite, which is the, the Noble systems. Five so, minutes well. Oh, really? <laughs> that's gone quick. I know. Crikey. Well, they they um, they got lots. <laughs> I'll speed up. Crikey, I'm going to run out of time. So they got um, two time frames. They looked at uh, the one year and the five year. And then they did some um, some analysis of the SLA and the SLA active and the different surfaces. And when they did that, if they found that there was no deviations between the, the two surfaces, then they, they basically clumped them together and they looked at the um, the marginal bone loss, and then um, compared those with all three against each other. They looked at immediate protocols as well for one and five years. So they basically ended up with sort of four tables um, and then compared the standard deviations where it was appropriate. Um, and then when they when they looked at it in sort of great detail and, and pulled everything, um, they found there was a, a slight difference um, between the implant surfaces with the um, Strayman implant sort of being fairly medium uh, in the group and with the uh, Osseo speed uh, being slightly better in its performance over the five years and over the one year actually immediate loaded or not, with the TIE Unite sort of performing a little bit uh, less successful um, when it wasn't immediately loaded, uh, certainly after five years. But we're talking uh, millimeters here, so they're seeing a difference of millimeters. Um, so it's it's a good it's a good little paper, and I think Faddy, um, you know, I, I I can understand why you might get excited because you know implant surface technology. We're looking at that in great detail, and we're looking how that affects. They don't go into a huge amount of detail on this uh, regarding the technology, and I think they can they could, we could open that up. And I think as papers come through, we're going to see a lot more of that and a lot more. But I thought it was a nice paper to kind of get us started and get the interest going on how that technology uh, can affect it. So I'll, I'll finish off if uh, I still have time, if that's okay, Kate, with which, which I thought was a, a nice little paper where um, the guys have got together and, and they, they're talking about the development of an artificial intelligence model to identify a dental implant from a radiograph. Nice and succinct title. And they, they talk about uh, a convoluted neural network or a CNN. And, and what um, they've done with this is they've, They've taken radiographs. Um, I think they had you had to have a hundred radiographs for the system that systems that they were having a look at, and they chose um, they chose six systems um, to look at. So I think there was Strayman again in there, uh, Swiss Plus, uh, Nobel were in there, but I think there were Branamark. And they talk about this this app uh, called What Implant Is This, um, which. I use sometimes when I'm trying to identify a system and that they, they mention its use uh, and they mention um, how sometimes that implant sort of data uh, or identifying an implant can be quite difficult, especially if the patient loses what they've gone or, or I've certainly had it where a patient's either had the implants placed abroad or they've come from a different clinic and the implantologist has left and the notes have also mysteriously disappeared um, so when you're trying to identify this implant, they all have different connections. Um, so what, they, what they've tried to do is they've tried to build this in really interesting computer model to identify the implant from a picture. 
So they take the radiographs, they turn it into a picture, then they put the picture into the computer model. And then through uh, the way this uh, computer brain works is it sieves through a various load of filters down to give you the identify the implant for you and then pops out, you know, it thinks it's this basically. And, and they got really good success with it. They, they uh, did really well with it. They got, I think it was around about 97 to 98% success in being able to identify the, the different implant pictures that it was given. And the more data that this sort of network gets, then the more accurate you're going to get a reading. And that's kind of how the, the what implant database currently works, but it relies on going through this filter. And when I first was looking for uh, identifying implants, I found some of the terms a little bit confusing. I didn't really understand what they meant. And it would have been really nice if I could have had a picture and, and put that picture forward. What happens now is that picture comes to me via WhatsApp or uh, as an email with uh, the people that I work with going, any idea what this is, mate? Um, and then I go to what implant is this if my brain doesn't recognize it straight away. So I think having a system like this that can help us identify what implants we're placing in patients when that data has gone missing uh, would be really helpful for us. Um, and it will take away some of that that error that we uh, sometimes have to go through in trying to figure it out or asking all those people or all the delays that can happen. It also It is already uh, in place uh, in, in some uh, aspects of medicine uh, to some extent. So the orthopedic surgeons are already using something similar to this. So they're kind of building on that model. But I, I thought it was uh, wonderful. I, I like this kind of uh, this stuff. Um, but I think, Kate, I'm probably getting to the end of my time. So I shall, I shall wrap it up there. <laughs> thank you, Carl. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Over to you, Sinjin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carl. Brilliant. Um, some very interesting papers. Colleagues, so I had the same problem Carl had um, with my current technology and trying to get the papers up to you. You'll get the list of the papers sent to you. Um, even happy to send the PDF. They're a bit big, I guess. I was asked to look at what's called the Journal of Dental Research, not an implant journal, but probably one of the top research journals the dentistry owns, particularly particularly for the UK and out towards America um, and then beyond beyond the west coast of America. So it's a very strong journal, reasonably high impact factor and quite hard to get papers landed in it because they're pretty um, they're pretty severe when they scrutinize um, the types of papers they accept. For those of you who, who've, who've met me in the past uh, will know that I've got a bit of an interest in medical challenges and trying to rationalize what that means to us in clinical practice, whether we do or don't go ahead with various um, treatments. And also many of you might know that I'm uh, quite interested in legal issues and the emergence of the Montgomery ruling when it comes to consent, uh, Montgomery versus Lanarkshire in 2015, um, pretty much insists that we have discussions with patients that will take into account uh, all the material risks that the procedure brings. Uh, and that, of course, has got to take into account the likely survival rates or issues that might interfere with that. So I've gone looking in the Journal of Dental Research for papers that are of relevance in that arena, particularly highlighting conditions that you may or may not have thought of previously 
to bring to your patient's attention could be a risk factor in predicting the successful outcome of the treatment they're about to undergo, which according to the Montgomery ruling and subsequent rulings um, means we really have to be able to give them that information. So when you, when you do read the papers, I hope you'll see the big messages that are coming out. So I've got three or four here, three of them all to do with implants, uh, two of them very contemporary, one of them a little bit aged, and then another another paper which I picked up, which I think was currently quite um, pertinent. So the first paper I want to highlight to colleagues is the uh, paper which is a research report. So it is a research um, paper. It's uh, written by um, Y.N. Wang and a range of colleagues who are uh, from the uh, Department of Stomatology in Shandong. Uh, like many of these large emerging Chinese cities, that's a very high quality institution uh, with some serious research going on. Uh, interesting their ethics and consent process over there. But this is an animal study and an in vitro study. And it, um, it nicely um, highlights the effect of hyperlipidemia uh, on the ability of bone to osseointegrate around implant surfaces. And they've used two models. They've used an animal model, a mouse model, where they've placed titanium uh, implants into the femurs of the animals. But they've also done in vitro uh, testing where they've um, looked at the growth of primary osteoblasts uh, on titanium surfaces within an in vitro situation. And the variability is that the mice uh, have been genetically altered to have a very high lipid um, content. Uh, and in, in the in vitro studies, they've looked at increasing lipid concentration in the culture mediums. So to cut a long story short, it, the bottom line is that hyperlipidemia they have found uh, impairs osteointegration, both in the animal model and um, also in the uh, in vitro model. Now I find that quite interesting because I was trying to figure out, well, how can that be? And the methodology that they have looked at and investigated, usually by blocking out various pathways, and two main pathways they've looked at. One of them is, is the reactive um, oxidation uh, uh, system um, uh, or reactive oxygen species, so free radicals, if you like. And it appears that an environment of hyperlipidemia increases an overproduction of these reactive oxygen species. And of course, that's going to have a deleterious effect upon the, the health of the membranes and then the nuclei of any surrounding cells. And as you know, in bone formation, you're going to get a number of primary cells having to act to repair the damage that you cause by um, getting hold of a drill and creating an osteotomy site. The second method, slightly more scientific, slightly more complicated, is an inhibition of a differentiation pathway known as WNT or beta-catenin. It's just a name. Don't be put off by the names. They're simply names. What they, are, what they identify are intracellular nuclear transcription factors that have to be activated to set osteoblasts off uh, 
on their differentiation pathway. And this particular pathway appears to be affected by the hyperlipidemia, very likely, I'm sure, by the free radicals that get in. So it's, a, it's quite a nice paper. It's been well constructed, beautifully illustrated, as one would expect. The Chinese pour gazillions into research. And um, with envy, we look upon at some of the activity they have. Chinese universities are quite hard to work in because you've actually got to be very productive and produce high quality. And the Journal of Dental Research is one of those yardsticks for dental research. But I think for us that's quite interesting because I don't know how many of you sit in front of a patient or how many of you got proformers that ask, do you have hyperlipidemia? Uh, and I certainly can't remember having seen it as a question um, on, a, on a medical history form. I don't look at them as often as you guys do. But I think in terms of Montgomery, this is something you need to consider because if you're going to impair osseointegration, although I agree these are not clinical studies that has to be looked at, but um, this is a paper from this month, 2021. So um, I think that's a quite an interesting message to come through and a reminder for us that we need to be asking these questions when we are taking them on as patients because anything that impairs or inhibits the, the expected outcome, their expected outcome, then you need to tell them about this. And this research suggests that hyperlipidemia needs to come into that bracket. Interestingly, they go on and look at methodologies of reversing the effects of hyperlipidemia um, by putting in um, targeted pharmaceutical drugs to inhibit the inhibition, if you like. And they have shown that the quality of the bone uh, goes doesn't go back to normal, um, uh, re, uh, becomes normal. Uh, in those conditions where you've inhibited the hyperlipidemia. But the message there I hope you can see is that there's another medical issue you need to draw out when you ask individuals their medical histories. Um, have you got hyperlipidemia? The question is, do they know whether they've got hyperlipidemia? Of course. All right. Now, the second paper I would ask you to have a look at when you get the list through is actually got a bit of age on it like myself, but like many things, um, age things mature well, um, unless you're Carl, of course, and as you can see, he's maturing very poorly. Um, but people like myself, who, who obviously mature very elegantly, like and and Fadi, um, this paper comes back from 2014, and it did catch my eye. Um, again, got into the Journal of Dental Research, and that's no mean um, no mean feat. It's it comes from a prolific author known as Wu. Uh, and his and the group of Nicolau and Tamimi, who come from a very, very well-respected university known as McGill University in Montreal. And some of you have suffered the pain of things like um, problem-based learning can, can point at McGill and say, along with McMaster's, you've ruined my life. But nevertheless, um, they wrote a fantastic research report, clinical research report, uh, which highlighted that individuals who've been on long-term antidepressants, SSRIs particularly, are at an increased risk of implant failure. Now, I think we need to take that into account. I recognize that uh, antidepressants can, can affect platelet function. I hope everybody's aware of that. What I was less knowledgeable about is that their bone cells have got on them a range of hydroxytryptamine, which is the chemical name for serotonin, 
uh, hydroxytryptamine or serotonin receptors, um, 1B, 2B and 2C for the pedants amongst you. And that if you block those receptors, for example, by taking an SSRI, a serotonin specific reuptake inhibitor, you will block um, an important stimulatory um, uh, message to uh, stimulate bone cells, osteoblasts, to form bone. And in fact, in the study that they've done in terms of the review of the literature, and I'll just describe the methodology briefly, it actually releases osteoclasts to have increasing function by removing the osteoblast um, uh, presence and influence that it has on the osteoclasts themselves. The, the paper looked uh, as a retrospective study Therefore, you need to crit critique what's going on in there uh, and was conducted on notes from patients who were treated from 2007 to 2013. And they looked at two groups, those patients who weren't on SSRIs and those who were on SSRIs. And they looked at the failure rate amongst the two groups. Um, clearly, the non-SSRI group was, was much bigger, which had somewhere in the region of just over 800 uh, users, whereas in the, non, in the SSRI group, they had about 84 patients. But they looked at the failure rate in both. And the big message that comes out is that the failure rate in, 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 in patients who take SSRI, who are SSRI users, there was an increased risk of dental implant failure of six point, almost 6.3 times that of individuals not on SSRIs. So Five six, minutes in, Jim. Thank you. Six times the risk. Um, there's criticism, criticisms that you'll see of this paper. For example, they're obviously hunting through notes. There's no standardizations. Uh, there's no... Um, it's a significantly retrospective. There's no, there's no um, issues. Um, there's lots of notes that didn't have the doses in. And of course, the big criticism, of course, they didn't really take into account other, other issues like how badly depressed were they and how were they looking after their oral cavity in terms of oral health. So I looked hard to see if further cases have been looked at, hasn't quite appeared yet. But the takeaway message is, just like the hyperlipidemia, a discussion needs to be had for individuals on SSRIs. They do anyway, because they might be on depression and their expectation issues may be changed. But there is no doubt that individuals on these medications need to have an extra discussion about risks of failure. Just two quick, quickly then, two other little papers that I wanted to highlight. Again, one from 2017, a critical review. Uh, I think it's quite an interesting paper because it takes into the subject of infection on implant surfaces and um, highlights the fact that implant surfaces, of course, are being um, exposed in the intraoral cavity to saliva and possibly biofilm formation, even on their journey into the osteotomy socket and but certainly into those exposed areas that have any longevity and of course it does bring into focus um, the issue of peri-implantitis well the paper is written by a chap called Hick Cock um, and is an individual who works I think in Philadelphia yeah uh, Thomas Jefferson University no mean university can I tell you uh, in Philadelphia and they've done a very nice critical 
review. So it's not a mini systematic, it's a critical review. Um, so you could criticize um, the bias that's introduced when you do these reviews because you you go for the you go obviously for the papers that you really like to read and that that can obviously be quite subjective but the big message was that there is definitely a potential future in antimicrobial implant surfaces they compared three types they compared um, the surface of implants that is unfriendly to anti to um, bacteria um, they looked at surfaces that release antimicrobials and they then looked at surfaces that were permanently binding agents which created an antimicrobial surface. So they would create an amine surface onto which they would bind permanently vancomycin, gentamicin, tetracycline, a range. The bottom line is there were problems, uh, as you will see when you read the paper with the, the drawbacks that you in terms of stability and efficacy of the antibiotics that are on there. But there's no doubt that the permanent surface alterations do seem to have an advantage in reducing the biofilm formation. Now, that's got a long way to go before it lands in the clinical arena, but keep your eyes out for that because I think as, um, uh, as uh, medicinal chemistry and material chemistry increases, I think we'll be seeing more and more of these uh, being offered in the long term. Finally, I moved away from implants in this month's edition of the Journal of Dental Research is a very interesting paper on the oral manifestations in patients with COVID-19. And this is a very good systematic review by uh, Amarim Dos Santos from Brazil. It's got into the JDR, therefore it's going to be well scrutinized. Methodology of a systematic review there in terms of um, setting out parameters, um, looking at search search terms, the search bases, the um, databases they've looked at, looking at assessment of bias, um, looking at fantastic statistics on how they looked at the methodology, even did a meta-analysis. So it's got a really nice um, review of the current status. And I thought it was interesting because it obviously makes the case for disturbance in taste. But the disturbance in taste, they broke into three areas. One was dysquagia, which of course is, is a sort of an uncomfortable taste rather than the normal taste. You're, you, you have a sort of a painful and a, a disordered taste. Hypoguasia, which of course is just reduced taste. And finally, aguasia, which is no taste. And that there was basically a sort of 40%, 35%, 25% split in those three areas. So when taste is affected, it has three different degrees of taste alteration. But what grabbed my eye was that there are apparently emerging evidence for other oral mucosal lesions. And they include white and red plaques. Remember, a plaque is a raised area irregular ulcers, blisters, particularly small blisters, petechiae, which are called a small bruising, and interestingly, disquamative gingivitis, localized in some cases. And the tongue, palate, lips, and gingivae, and buccal mucosa uh, were all affected. Um, I think it beholds us as clinicians to keep our eyes open. Um, to be fair, most of these conditions appeared after the onset of respiratory symptoms, particularly, um, uh, but in one or two cases, they did accompany asymptomatics.
So I think as a clinician, um, we need to have that in our back pocket when we are reviewing oral cavities and any changes. And I know I must be finishing and I'm, uh, I will hand over now to Manoj. Thank you, Sinjin. Thanks, Sinjin. Uh, right, so I uh, have been looking at a couple of papers and um, the journal I was looking at uh, was clinical oral implant research. Um, I've got a couple of papers which are similar. Um, so one was a very recent paper uh, and one uh, a year old. Um, I'll begin with the more recent one. So this looked at um, the influence of restorative design of the crown on the progression of peri-implant bone loss. Um, uh, specifically, it looked at two factors. It looked at um, the emergence um, angle of the crown, and it also uh, looked at the prosthetic screw. It looked at the length of the prosthetic screw, and it looked at the diameter of the prosthetic screw, if that had to do, uh, if that had any impact on, on progression of marginal bone uh, loss following perimplantitis. So we're not talking about uh, the restorative design causing perimplantitis. Uh, is if perimplantitis does happen, then uh, does it accelerate bone loss? That's what was looking at. Um, this is a paper by uh, uh, Majub et al. Um, and uh, this is from, um, let me see, from, uh, hang on, let me get the paper up. Uh, from the Department of Periodontics and Oral Medicine, uh, University of Michigan School of, of Dentistry. Now, uh, coming back to the paper, it was a retrospective study. Uh, these were implants diagnosed with peri-implantitis, um, having a thorough follow-up. Uh, importantly, it had follow-up uh, six months prior to the diagnosis of peri-implantitis, and then they followed it up for one year after peri-implantitis happened, and then another year after that. Now. It's important to note uh, the definition of perimplantitis that uh, they latched onto uh, was the current one, the 2017 World Consensus Report, uh, which just to refresh your memory says that if there's uh, about three millimeters bone loss uh, around an implant with a pocket depth of six millimeters plus uh, and with or without bleeding uh, on probing and uh, purulence, that is perimplantitis. Now, they looked at the effect of uh, different variables on, on marginal bone loss via uni and multivariate um, equations. And uh, in total, they looked at 83 bone level, not tissue, bone level implants in 65 patients. Um, the mean follow-up before perimplantitis occurred was in the range of four to eight years. Uh, the inclusion uh, that they had was quite basic. They, uh, it needed to have full documentation. Uh, patients had to be on a maintenance protocol with at least one annual clean uh, and having no surgical intervention of the affected area. Exclusions were quite standard and medically compromised patients were excluded, people on bisphosphonates, anti-cancer therapy, etc. cetera, uh, those within, uh, without uh, full records, those that didn't meet the 2017 guidelines. Um, and if there's any surgical treatment that was done within the first two years for perimplantitis, those were, uh, those were excluded. Uh, they also uh, excluded tissue uh, level implants and they excluded multi multiple uh, unit implants or implants with splinted crowns. They did take information regarding bruxism, smoking, et cetera. But, so this was not in the exclusion criteria and they checked the influence of these variables. Now, Within 
the included subjects, uh, peri-implant uh, peri as progression of marginal bone loss did not seem to be affected by any of the clinical characteristics, that is age, smoking, uh, diabetes, bruxism. Uh, what did uh, come out is that uh, predominantly the rate of bone loss, marginal bone loss, seemed to be affected by the angle of, 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 the, uh, of the crown. So in other words, if the emergence angle of the crown was more than 30 degrees, then they found there was some, uh, substantially more bone loss and rapid bone loss as opposed to uh, uh, implants uh, with an emergence angle, which was a lot narrower. And the other factor they found, again, surprisingly, that then bone loss did take place. Uh, and again, this is in 66% uh, of the implants where bone loss had taken place, that this bone level dropped to about a zone of one millimeter from the apical end of the internal screw. Uh, although the internal screw length and diameter did not seem to have any impact on the marginal bone loss. Now, again, what some of the things that uh, they did not look at, I would imagine, and could have an impact, um, was uh, the actual placement of the, of the implant. How deep was it, apicocoronally? Was it crestal? Was it subcrestal? Was it supracrestal? The margin itself, uh, was the margin um, a couple of millimeters away from the implant head? Was it too deep? Because if it was, then it would invade the biologic width and that itself could cause bone loss. Um, and this paper also referenced another um, paper, another paper by Yusung Yi et al. from um, the Department of uh, Perio. Again, this was Seoul uh, University. So that comes brings me back to the second paper, which had uh, a bigger sample size, if you like. So as compared to this paper with a limited sample size, uh, the next paper I'm talking about, the Yusung Yi et al, had a much bigger sample size. And this looked at something else. This looked at uh, the emergence angle of the crown, but also looked at whether it causes perimperial. So the difference is, uh, the previous paper we spoke about, I spoke about progression of peri-implant disease and not whether the emergence angle caused it. This paper looked at it from a different angle, slightly different angle, uh, and it looked at whether it actually caused the peri-implant bone loss. Uh, so let me tell you a bit about this one. This was uh, Yi et al. This was a cross-sectional study, again, retrospective, but with a larger sample size, 169 patients, and they looked at 349 implants. Uh, here, the exclusions, again, were quite straightforward. Uh, they excluded people with systemic diseases, smokers with uh, patients who had irregular maintenance care, and patients who had a full mouth block score of greater than 25%. Uh, the inclusions, uh, they included more than what, what the previous paper had. They included uh, different implant connections, so internal, external, and tissue level implants. Uh, they included history of periodontitis, uh, bone augmentation, uh, immediate placements, one or two stage protocols. And they also looked at uh, various crown length ratios. Uh, again, uh, going back to how they designed it, uh, inter and intra examiner variability uh, was assessed. Perimplantitis was diagnosed based on 
uh, peripheral bone loss and problem death. Again, like the previous paper, they used the 2017 World, Work World Workshop classification of periodontal diseases by Bergman et al. Uh, and they looked at the same similar factors. They looked at marginal bone loss, emergence angle, again, various degrees. Uh, again, let me emphasize the emergence angle they're talking about is um, the deviation. So you have your implant walls, which are parallel. Uh, and then when the crown emerges, as opposed to the uh, uh, wall, is it 10 degrees, 15, 20, 30, and plus. So that's the emergence angle that they looked at. They also looked at the emergence profile. In other words, was it a convex emergence profile, a concave, or a flat uh, emergence profile? They looked at crown implant um, ratio and the splinting, uh, whether it was a distal cantilever, mesial cantilever, or splinted in the middle with implants on either side. Um, again, the conclusions uh, were as follows. Uh, bone level internal, uh, external hex, sorry, not internal, bone level external hex had more marginal bone loss. The emergence angle, again, had a significant correlation with marginal bone loss if it was beyond 30 degrees. Again, the same thing that we saw in the previous paper. Crown to implant ratio had no significant effect at all. Uh, so basically over-contoured and splinted implants had higher risk of perimplantitis. Convex proximal surfaces showed more marginal bone loss than flat or straight. Patients with periohistory had more marginal bone loss, but not necessarily a higher rate of perimplantitis. Again, un unlike the last paper, they had records from baseline, uh, one year, and five years. So they're looking at progressively all the way up. So the conclusions here were that over-contoured um, implant prosthesis um, is a critical local co-founder for perimplantitis. The emergence angle um, of the crown, if it's greater or equal to 30 degrees, convex emergence uh, profiles, and splinting to both mesial and distal adjacent implants, uh, they found have a higher risk of perimplantitis. Uh, how am I doing, Kate, for time? Five minutes now, Manoj. Okay, uh, great. Uh, so I'll go to the third one at this point. Uh, now this, again, isn't very different, but um, it takes a slightly different approach. We've looked at, um, these two papers have looked at uh, the emergence angle of crown over contouring, uh, and that that has, uh, some sort of a, a correlationship with uh, marginal bone loss. Uh, you would imagine, uh, with that in mind, that uh, cantilevers uh, would have uh, a similar kind of an issue. Uh, so the third paper uh, was uh, a paper I looked at. This was by Eric Schmidt, uh, Giovanni Salvi, Anton Scully. This is the Department of Periodontology, uh, University of Bern, uh, Switzerland. Um, and this looked at clinical and radiographic outcomes of implants supported fixed dental prosthesis, in other words, cantilevered extensions. Uh, a retrospective cohort study with a follow-up of at least uh, 10 years. So a long, uh, long uh, follow-up. Uh, it looked at patients with, um, uh, with cantilevers in posterior areas only, so the canine back. 
they were evaluated clinically and radiographically. Uh, they looked at the uh, marginal bone levels from baseline all the way up. Uh, and uh, these were compared between different implant surfaces adjacent to and distant from the cantilever extension. Uh, in total, they looked at, uh, it was a smallish sample size, I would imagine, but uh, a long follow-up. They looked at 26 patients uh, with 30 cantilever uh, extensions supported by 60 implants. So uh, if you calculate, uh, you had uh, typically at least a couple of implants supporting a third pontic, uh, an, a pontic. Uh, the patient selection uh, was quite uh, strict. Uh, they were looking at uh, patients, um, the inclusion criteria was patients with uh, good systemic uh, uh, health and uncontrolled uh, medical conditions. Um, patients with healthy or treated periodontal conditions, and patients who were in regular supportive periodontal therapy. At least two implants supporting a third, but they were looking at basically Strauman uh, tissue level uh, implants, uh, uh, which had an extra abutment attached to them. Uh, and the uh, attachments normally they looked at was a single premolar or a single molar unit with an extension of not more than six to seven millimeters. Now, again, in the inclusion criteria, there had to be an absence of occlusal contacts or guidance on the extension. Uh, so this was the basic inclusion. Exclusion criteria uh, were limited. Untreated or active periodontal diseases uh, was a main exclusion criteria, and they excluded implants in the anterior zone, in the aesthetic zone. Uh, now, results, marginal bone loss, uh, and pocket depth thing, pocket depths, both they found uh, were uh, surprisingly quite limited. They found a little bit of an increased marginal bone uh, loss and an increased bone to implant uh, contact loss immediately adjacent uh, to the pontic and at the part of the bone furthest away from the pontic. A slight increase in pocket depth closer uh, to where the pontic was, but not uh, statistically significant. So on an average, uh, long-term pocket depths uh, change by about 0.4 to 0.5 millimeters, and marginal bone loss did not increase by more than 0.2 or 0.3 millimeters. So quite limited for uh, procedures um, going on for, uh, for 10 plus years. Uh, ultimately, uh, conclusions. Uh, were these, although peri-implant health was diagnosed in 46% in, in of, of the uh, implants, peri-implant mucositis uh, in 26%, and limited peri-implantitis in seven patients in total, that was 26%. What they did find um, was a higher rate uh, of loss of retention, in other words, prosthetic complications. Uh, those were higher, and as far as success or survival goes, only one implant uh, was lost. When we say lost, one implant, a narrow diameter one, was fractured. So their conclusion was that uh, despite a high rate of loss of retention, the use of implant-supported um, uh, fixed bridges, uh, cantilevered bridges, was, was a reliable long-term um, long option. I think... Um, I've run out of time.
Is that right, Kate? Yes, you're just there, Manoj. You're just there, yes. That's fantastic. <laughs> Carl, Fadi, Manoj, Sinjin, thank you very much. Over to you, Fadi. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for, for that. I hope you, you guys who are watching found this useful. Um, uh, there was one theme I've noticed in one of my papers that I was talking about with um, cardiovascular risk factors. The triglycerides was one of them. And just just the relation with one of the papers you were mentioning that um, hyperlipidemia was an issue. And that, that's actually interesting that there were two papers we found that are, are actually um, relating to that. Um, the other stuff with Carla uh, Manoj, the stuff he came up, which was again reinforcing. I hope you both agree. A lot of stuff we teach on the course, um, a lot of what you found in these recent papers is still is, re is encouraging that you know that those thoughts haven't changed really. Um, any any comments from anybody before we close? I'm only 21, actually. <laughs> <laughs> So you're quite right. I've aged all. You need to wear more makeup. You <laughs> <laughs> get that shiny part. I I love that, you guys. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it, was, it was some lovely stuff there. I, you know, I'm gonna have to. I just to let everybody know we we didn't know um, what each person picked from these papers. So maybe that maybe we do need to know so we don't duplicate things because uh, mm -hmm. we do read from different articles. But that that was um, superb. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you all very, very much. And uh, thank you, guys, that are listening. Yeah. I want to say a special thank you to Professor Sinjin Preen, actually, as uh, our guest panelist today. Uh, sorry, Manoj, you were, you were going to say something. No, I'm seconding that, really. How about the makeup, that is? <laughs> <laughs> Take a lot, it's going to be a lot of makeup, mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. goes into my. Well, no, we won't go there. <laughs> won't go there at all. Uh, I just want no. to echo what the guys have just said. Thank you to everybody for tuning in, and uh, we will look forward to uh, seeing you again. We hope. Um, hope you all have a lovely weekend. And the panelists again, please, Carl, Fadi, Manard, Sinjin, thank you very, very much. Kate, thank you. Uh, can I just say um, the papers will be uh, available for those that are free access. We'll we'll get those, the PDFs. And for those that aren't free access, um, we'll give you the titles, the authors and, and where you can um, find them um, just so that everybody gets a, a look at um, the papers that they might be interested in reading further, which I recommend by the sounds of it, all of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And thank you very much. Thank you, Kate. Is the next one, in, is it the fourth Thursday of the month? Is that right? Or... It's we what we're going to confirm, but that's what we're trying to do, yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Good night, everybody. everybody. Yeah. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.